Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Thanks for coming. It's my pleasure today to introduce Michelle Richmond. Her first book, a collection of short stories titled The Girl in a Fallaway Dress, won an Associated Writing Programs Award for Short Fiction while still in manuscript, and it was published in 2001. Reviewing this auspicious beginning, the San Francisco Chronicle wrote, remember this name, Michelle Richmond. This is a young writer whose future progression should be exhilarating to watch. And that's exactly what's happened. Michelle followed up with the novel Dream of the Blue Room in 2003. The novel moves between Alabama and China. The protagonist, Jenny, travels to China, carrying the ashes of her friend and sometimes lover, Amanda Ruth. On a cruise ship, she meets a terminally ill Australian who wants Jenny to be the instrument of his planned demise. The novel becomes a meditation on grief and loss in relation both to people and the geography they live in. In China and Alabama, the landscapes Jenny moves through are being altered and destroyed by industrialization. In 2007, Michelle published the novel The Year of Fog. As the book opens, a young woman named Abby walks on a foggy beach in San Francisco with her boyfriend's six-year-old daughter, Emma. Abby turns away for a moment to photograph a dead seal pup, and when she turns back, Emma has vanished. The Library Journal described the book as a mesmerizing novel of loss and grief, hope and redemption, and the endurance of love. After Emma disappears, Abby tells us, the first story I tell, the first clue that I reveal will determine the direction of the search. Should I tell the police about the postman in the parking lot, the motorcycle, the man in the orange Chevelle, the yellow van? Or is it the seal that matters, the hearse, the retaining wall, the wave? How does one distinguish between the relevant and the extraneous? One slip in the narrative, one mistake in the selection of details, and everything disintegrates. The narrative moves on this razor's edge between chaos and understanding, between senseless grief and the need for resolution. Ellie, the narrator of Michelle's latest novel, No One You Know, struggles not only with the loss of a beloved sister, but also with the fact that somebody else has turned the sister's murder into a best-selling true crime book. Decades later, Ellie comes into possession of her mathematician sister's notebook and is provoked again into investigating the circumstances of her sister's murder. Her investigation is also a meditation on narrative itself, on storytelling and its powers, on what is left out of stories and how much we can truly understand, even of our loved ones. The reviewer for the Boston Globe described the book as thoughtful, involving, intricately constructed and well-written, an intelligently, emotionally convincing tale about a family tragedy and the process of storytelling. Michelle lives in San Francisco with her husband and son. She's currently at work on a new novel, which I hope she'll finish soon. Please join me in welcoming Michelle Richmond. Thank you so much, Vikram, for that wonderful introduction. I, about halfway through, I wished that I had my iPhone out and I was videotaping it because then I would put it on YouTube and it would make me seem really fancy. Oh, is it being videotaped? Hi. <laughs> Forget I said that. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, that, that, was, that was really wonderful. You did your research. Thank you so much. Um, Vikram and I were just talking uh, before, beforehand about 
um, we're talking about, um, we're both working on novels right now, and we both have small children, and we were uh, talking about um, how, um, how difficult it is to just sort of, you know, get to that place um, where you're um, making progress on the book. And so um, it was nice to hear you say that I'm writing a, a novel. I'm sure my editor would like to believe that. And uh, we'll see. It was, I was supposed to turn it in in December, but I find it very strange now to have um, to always have a deadline for a book because um, those of you who um, do much writing probably know how difficult it is to produce something um, by a, um, you know, a, to produce a short story or something of that nature by a particular date. It, it almost just makes you clinch up and uh, want to turn your head away from it. So what I've been doing instead of, I'm almost finished with the book, sort of, but I have two chapters I have to write at the end and then a lot of work to do on it. But what I find myself doing every day when I sit down to write the book, I start a new one. And they never get more than like two paragraphs in. And so I keep thinking of all these books that I want to write. Very, you know, probably maybe one of one of those will actually turn into something. But um, there's there's such a great sense of possibility when when you sit down to write a book and everything is open before you and it and it feels so so pleasant and happy and um, like you can really do this. And and then you get to the point where you know you're 250 pages in and you realize you've written yourself into a hole and you have no idea what to do. And that's where I am now. So if anyone wants to finish my book on contract, I will pay you perhaps not handsomely but I will pay you um, I guess what I'll I'll read from the opening chapter of No One You Know and um, uh, what, what can I say about this so this is my most recent book and it is um, uh, I still remember sort of the impetus for this book I knew I wanted to write a book where um, two people meet um, and uh, in two people who have sort of a hazy history together meet in, in a place where um, a, sort of an unfamiliar and unexpected place and have this uh, sort of weird interaction between them. And so I knew I wanted a book to start at that point, and I knew that I sort of um, wanted to uh, explore storytelling and how it can, you know, how the stories that people tell about us can shape our lives if we allow them to. So um, I'll read here from the first chapter. This is from No One You Know. When I found him at last, I had long ago given up the search. It was late at night, and I was dining alone in a small cafe in Diriomo, Nicaragua. It was a place I had come to cherish during my annual visits to the village, the kind of establishment where one could order a plate of beans and a cup of coffee any time of day or night. I had spent the evening wandering the dark, empty streets. July days in Diriomo were scorching. Come nightfall, the buildings seemed to radiate heat so that the air possessed a baked, dusty scent. Eventually, I came to the familiar intersection. Going left would lead to my hotel with its hard bed and uncooperative ceiling fan. Straight ahead was a baseball diamond where I had once seen a kid beat a rat to death with an old wooden bat. To the right was a wide road giving way to a crooked alleyway at the end of which the cafe beckoned. Sometime past midnight, I stood on the doorstep ringing the little copper bell. Maria appeared, dressed in a long blue skirt, white blouse, looking as though she'd been expecting me. Oh, look, we have visitors. Shall we tell them this is part of the tour and make them come in and sit through the whole thing? Hi. They're doing school tours right now, right? 
for all those people who got their admission slips. Did I wake you? No, she said. Welcome. It was a ritual greeting between us. I had no way of knowing whether Maria was actually asleep on those nights or whether she was sitting patiently in her kitchen waiting for customers. What are you serving tonight, I asked. This was also ritual, for we both knew that the menu never changed, no matter the time or season. Nakatamal, she said, ¿Esto usted sola? Si, señora, I am alone. My answer, like the menu, had remained unaltered for years, and yet she asked it each time with a kind of naked hope, as if she believed that one day my luck might change. The cafe was empty and dark, somehow cool despite the heat outside. She pointed to a small table where a candle burned in a jar. I thanked her and sat down. I could hear her preparing coffee in the kitchen, which was separated from the dining area by a narrow doorway in which hung a curtain of red fabric. I watched the patterns made by the candlelight on the far wall. The images seemed too lovely and symmetrical to be random. A bird, a sailboat, a star, followed by a series of rectangular bars of light. It was a feeling I often had in that town, and one of the reasons I kept returning when my work as a coffee buyer brought me to Nicaragua. A feeling that even the simplest natural acts were somehow ordered, as if some unnamed discipline reigned over both the animate and the inanimate. I rarely felt this way at home in San Francisco. Maria had just set my plate on the table when the bell clanged outside. Together we looked toward the door as if something miraculous might materialize. And all the times I had taken a midnight meal among the porcelain dolls and carnivorous, carnivorous plants in Maria's cafe, I'd rarely met another customer. She went to the door and opened it a crack. For a moment, my table was flooded with moonlight. Buenas noches, Maria, a man's voice said. The door closed, plunging the room once again into near darkness. The man passed by my table. His face was turned away, but in the pale light from the kitchen, I observed that he carried himself in the way very tall men often do, shoulders slumped in a sort of apology for taking up so much space. He wore a baseball cap pulled low on the forehead. A hardback book was tucked under one arm. He went to a table in the corner, the one farthest from my own. When he sat down, his back to me, the wooden chair creaked so violently I thought it might break. Maria took a match out of her apron pocket, struck it against the wall, and dipped the flame into a crimson jar on the man's table. Only after she had retreated into the kitchen to fetch his coffee did he turn around and glance at me from beneath the brim of his hat. In the flickering red candlelight, only his slightly jutting chin was visible, the rest of his face receding into shadows. Hello, I said. Good evening. You're North American, I said, surprised. Foreigners were scarce in Diriomo. Encountering him at this particular cafe in the middle of the night was utterly strange. I am, he said. He gave a polite wave of the hand before leaning over the table and peering into his book. He held the candle above the page, and I considered warning him it was bad for his eyes to read in the darkness. He seemed like the kind of man who needed to be told these things, the kind of man who ought to have someone taking care of him. Soon, Maria brought him coffee. Something about the way he lifted his cup, the way he turned the pages of his book, even the way he tilted his head toward Maria in silent thanks when she brought him a napkin and a bowl of sugar cubes struck me as familiar. I watched him closely, wondering if the feeling that I knew him was simply an illusion brought about by my having been traveling alone for too long. The longer I sat there, however, the more I became convinced that it was not the vague familiarity of one countryman to another, but something more personal. 
While he drank his coffee and read his book, seemingly oblivious to me, I tried to recall the context in which I might have known him. I sensed more than knew that it had been a long time ago and there had been some degree of intimacy between us. This sensation of intimacy coupled with my inability to remember was completely unsettling. The thought crossed my mind that I might have slept with him. There had been a period following my sister's death when I slept with many men. This was a long time ago, though, so long now that it almost seemed like a different life. Maria brought my food. I waited for the steaming plantain leaves to cool before peeling them away, picking up the nicatamol and biting in. Back home, I had tried several times to replicate Maria's combination of pork, rice, potatoes, mint leaves, raisins, and spices, but it never came out right. When I tried to tease the recipe out of her, she just laughed and pretended not to hear my request. You should try these, I said to the man between bites. Oh, I know Maria's food, he said, glancing my way once again. Delicious, but I already ate. What could he be doing here so late at night, I wondered, if he had already had his supper. A few minutes later, when I took my wallet out to pay, he closed his book and stared at the cover for a few seconds as if to gather courage before standing and walking over to to my table. Maria watched us shamelessly from the doorway of the kitchen. The red curtain was pulled aside, filling the room with soft light. For a moment, it occurred to me that perhaps Maria had set this whole thing up for my benefit. Perhaps she was trying to pull off a bit of matchmaking. The man removed his baseball cap and held it in both hands. His shaggy hair grazed the low ceiling, gathering static. Pardon me, he said. Now I could see his face completely, the large dark eyes and wide mouth, the high cheekbones and prominent chin covered with stubble, and I knew at once who he was. I had not seen him in 18 years. There had been a period of several months in college when I thought of him constantly. I had watched for his name in the paper, had performed drive-bys of his ground floor flat in Russian Hill, had taken lunch at a certain small restaurant in North Beach that he frequented, despite the fact that the menu stretched my student budget beyond its limits. At that time, I suspected that if I shadowed him without ceasing, I could begin to understand something, maybe not the thing he had done, but the mechanism by which he had been able to do it. That mechanism, I was certain, was a psychological abnormality. Some moral tuning fork that was present in others was absent in him. Then, one afternoon in August of 1991, he vanished. That day, I walked into the restaurant in North Beach at half past noon, as I had been doing every week for three three months. Immediately, my eyes went to a table in the corner, above which hung a miniature oil painting of the Cathedral Duomo of Milan. It was where he always sat, a table that seemed to be reserved specifically for him. He always arrived on Monday at a quarter past noon, and after sitting down, would place a notebook on the table to the right of his bread plate. He rarely bothered to glance up at his surroundings as he scribbled furiously in the notebook with a mechanical pencil. He would pause only to order spaghetti with prawns and marinara sauce, which he ate quickly, followed by an espresso, which he drank slowly. The whole time, he worked, scribbling with his right hand and eating with his left. But that day in August, he wasn't there. Immediately, I sensed something had changed. I dipped my bread in olive oil and waited. By the time the waiter brought my salad, I knew he wasn't coming. At 1.15, I called in sick to the University of San Francisco Library, where I held a work-study position and took the bus to Russian Hill. There was a for rent sign in front of his flat, and the shutters were open. Through the large windows, I could see the place was stripped clean, all of the furniture gone. It occurred to me that I might never see him again. So that's the that's how that chapter ends, and uh, 
So I was supposed to look at the clock before I started, Beverly, but I forgot. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so, um, so yeah, that's the beginning of, of that book. Actually, you know, uh, when I was, um, I got here early because I, I drove and I, I um, left home early so I could avoid the traffic. And so I was, I was sitting in my car um, deciding what to read. And then I was looking for a scrap of paper to uh, mark the page that I was going to read from. And so uh, I found this in the back seat, which, because um, my son always brings, he's five, and he always brings this, you know, he always does lots of artwork at school. And uh, he always draws people and monsters. And so I remembered when he brought this home the other day, I said, well, is that a person or a monster? And he said, he hasn't decided yet. <laughs> and um, and I, that really has nothing to do with anything. I just wanted to show off Oscar's artwork. And, uh, but um, a, another funny thing, we were reading a book the other night, and it was a picture book, and, um, and there was a picture of a boy turned away from the... Um, he was sort of, uh, you only saw the, the boy's back. And Oscar said, he said, does that boy know that we're reading about him? And I don't know. Oh, I know why I was thinking about that. Because I was working on an essay yesterday. And uh, this was an essay for um, uh, just an anthology about different jobs that writers have had because most of us have had a million. And, uh, and the essay was about something that happened to me 20 years ago. It was something that I had sort of forgotten about. And, uh, um, and then um, when, when this editor asked me to write this piece for this anthology um, and I started thinking about the different jobs, this event came back to mind and it was, it was kind of a pretty ugly event. And I just started writing, writing this essay and, uh, and then when I got to the end of the essay, I realized I was writing it for the person from 20 years ago, this terrible boss I had. And I realized that then when the essay came out, I was going to send it to him. And so I thought, well, how will I send it to him? How will I find him? And so, of course, I looked on Facebook. And there he was. And, uh, and, uh, and, um, and, I, and so when my... When, my son was talking about looking at the boy and wondering if we knew that he, were re he was reading him. I always wonder, when you put someone in a book and they're reading the book, do they know that they're reading about themselves? Do you think they do? Vikram, what do you think? <laughs> yeah. It's really ra neither here nor there, but it's something you have to sort of think about every time you write a book. Like... Um, how how much of it um you know is 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 there a real person present in that book and if they are have you disguised them well enough um generally i i don't have any real people in um i mean i don't have people that i know in my books other than just sort of uh you know sometimes i'll i'll borrow a name just for fun just so i can check to see if they really read it you know cuz then you know if they say oh i liked your book but they don't mention and they they don't mention themselves and you know they didn't actually read it so uh anyway yeah um so um so no one you know is about um sort of storytelling and it's also about math and it's about coffee so i did a lot of research for that book about um mathematics, and uh, in particular, a um, famous unsolved conjecture called the Goldbach Conjecture. Um, and uh, 
The Year of Fog is a book that, it's about a search for a missing child, but the research I did for that book was about memory. And so I spent a lot of time reading uh, case studies about um, memory and uh, strange instances in the history of memory. And um, one of them was so fascinating to me that I, that I, that I ended up uh, putting, um, putting it sort of early in the book, and I'm just going to read this uh, short passage about memory um, from the Year of Fog. So, uh, um, Abby has lost the little girl, six-year-old girl, Emma, and uh, she's become fascinated with how memory works because there are, there are no physical clues to lead her um, to the whereabouts of Emma, who went missing on Ocean Beach. So she feels that the answer must be buried somewhere in her memory, and so she um, becomes fascinated with uh, figuring out you know, how you access memory and, and what memory means. Um, so, late that night, sitting alone at my place with a pencil and notebook by my side, I delve into Nell's books. In a recently published volume called Strange Memory by a renowned professor of psychology named Stephen Perry, there's really no renowned psychology professor named Stephen Perry. I just, that was a friend's name that I wanted to use. I came upon the story, I come upon the story of Sharevsky, the man who could not forget. Perry references the classic work, The Mind of a Nemonist, wherein the Russian neuropsychologist Alexander Luria refers to his patient Sharevsky simply as S. It strikes me as odd that a man with so many memories would be reduced to a single letter. What did S. remember? Every word of every conversation stretching back into childhood, every meal he had eaten, every sound he had heard, every feature of every face he encountered. While amnesiacs have no ability to remember, S. suffered the impossibility of forgetting. Any page of text, any conversation was a minefield. A single word would cause an avalanche of memories that made it impossible to complete his train of thought. Imagine a street in any city on any given day. Now imagine that a walk down this street leads to thousands of permanent memories. For you, there is no such thing as the short term, no such thing as the forgettable. You will remember every storefront, every person standing behind the glass, each individual stance. Say this street is home to a bookshop. Walking past the shop, you glance in and see a few titles on display. Forever after, you will remember not only the titles, but also the covers of the books, the order in which they are arranged, the woman standing in line to make a purchase, the tilt of her head as she turns and sees you. You will remember the color of her lipstick, red, the shape of her legs, slim and long, the black leather sandal sliding off her heel. You will remember, too, the man behind the cash register, his haircut, the gold watch he wears. You hurry on ahead, aware as you do, that in the previous seconds you have supplied your memory with thousands of impressions you will have to carry with you until you die. Walking, contemplating this truth, you stub your toe. You look down and see the culprit, a raised spot on the sidewalk. This, too, will be your memory, the imperfection in the sidewalk, the painful sensation in the toe, the image of your own shoe in motion. And you will not be able to forget the fact that on that particular day of that particular year, in that exact location, you are contemplating your own curse, your lifetime of remembering. What is a search if not a dual exercise in hope and helplessness? So um, the reason I decided to put that part in the book was just... I. Can you imagine, like, sit, you, like sitting here, uh, what a curse that is, like sitting here, you can't, you won't forget this carpet, you know, or you won't forget the chandelier, or you look to the person next to you, and you, and you won't forget um, 
their the color of the sweater that they're wearing and I just because we hear a lot about um, loss of memory and I just thought it was so interesting that there is this phenomenon whereby um, nothing can be forgotten imagine what a minefield that would be like if every conversation you had had this associative morass that went with it that you couldn't climb out of but um so um that's kind of what writing a novel is like too i guess um you know you um you you for me when i'm i'm i always end up doing a lot of research for my books and um and uh, so often, as what's happening um, right now when I'm working on this new book, um, I just I get so buried in the research and find that I'm enjoying it so much that I can't climb out of the research and get back into the story. So if any of you have a cure for that, I would love to hear it. Um, uh, the new book I'm working on involves a secession, and so um, I or an attempted secession of a state. And um, I, so I started going back and reading about, um, you know, the, the Southern secession back uh, prior, to the, the, uh, prior to the Civil War. And, um, and I just got buried in it for a year. And now, and I'm only going to use, you know, maybe a week's worth of research in the book. But um, there it is. Um, should I, should I take questions now, or should I, do, do you want me to read a little bit more, or? Oh, okay, okay. Okay, maybe I'll, um, maybe I'll just talk a little bit more about, um, about uh, how um, I come, come upon stories, or, um, so Dream of the Blue Room, which uh, came before the Year of Fog, um, happened because I was, I happened to be in China working for about three months. Um, I had taken a job as an English tutor for a Chinese trading company while I was living in New York City. And when I took the job, I thought I was signing on for a, um, for a, an office job in the uh, Empire State Building. And um, about two weeks into the job, my boss told me that we were going to China and so um, we had had a sort of a miscommunication, and I was excited, but I was really nervous about leaving my life behind. And, and uh, I, you know, I didn't know how long I would be there. I didn't speak a word of Mandarin or Cantonese. And so I ended up in uh, Beijing and in this uh, apartment, this, a high-rise apartment um, within walking distance of um, the Forbidden City, and the best thing about my apartment was that it was across the street from a shopping mall that was almost entirely empty. I, there was hardly anyone shopping there ever, even though there were these um, very expensive, shishi, brand new stores there, but the shopping mall had a McDonald's in it, and so um, my employer never had time to be tutored. And so as soon as I got there, he left. And he went to Guangzhou and left me in Beijing. And I didn't know anything about the city. I didn't speak the language. But I soon discovered that by going to the McDonald's across the street, I could find some, this was in 1998, I could find someone to speak English because they had to speak English. They were required to speak English to be able to work at the McDonald's. So in this way, I would... Um, I got to travel around the city. I would go to the McDonald's. I would um, tell the people where I wanted to go, and I would have them write down the Chinese characters. 
and then um, and then I would take the characters to uh, a taxi driver or on a few occasions to a bus and um, and just show them the piece of paper and uh, and so I ended up getting to explore the city a lot that way and and go to um, and I was there for almost three months and my boss was almost never there with me so while I was there I ended up um, starting a memoir and then um, when I got home I quickly realized I really didn't have anything to write a memoir about so what I had spent a summer in China you know that wasn't really a memoir right so I um, I had this idea just sort of percolating in my head and then uh, and then it turned into a novel with a completely different character from um, from myself, um, but someone who had grown up in Alabama and then who sort of went on this um, journey in China to um, uh, sort of reconcile with the past and a friendship that she had had as a child. So uh, for me, a lot of times a book will come out of... Um, my, my books always take place... Uh, there, there's always something about them that... Um, is not where I am and is somewhat foreign to me. And oftentimes that just comes out of having um, been in that place or having been exposed to it in some way and then it sort of uh, works this way into a novel. That said, I, I, you know, a lot of people say that there's sort of a muse talking to them or their characters talk to them and sort of tell them where the book goes. But it doesn't work that way for me. Like, I, I mean, where it comes from is always sort of a surprise, but then, uh, there's always a um, definitely a sense of orca, you know, orchestrating it, and I guess that's really the hard work of a novel is trying to um, once you've gotten the original inspiration, then trying to figure out how to make something of it, and trying to figure out where it should go and and how it can like sort of come to a satisfying end and and seem realistic in some way, you know, but also surprising in some way. So that's where that book came from. And The Year of Fog came from uh, just living by the beach in San Francisco, by Ocean Beach, which is this... How many of you ever spend any time out there? Yes, good, you do. If you, then you probably know that on days when it's warm and it seems like it's going to be really sunny, you get out to Ocean Beach and it takes forever to get there because everyone else had the same idea that it's a sunny day and they're going to go to the beach and of course you get there and it's freezing. But um, I live by the beach and it's almost always cold and um, I spent a lot of time walking up and down Ocean Beach and... Um, one day when I was walking up and down Ocean Beach, it was in July, one of those supremely foggy days where you really can't see more than just, you know, everything is sort of a soup in front of you. I turned and glanced and saw a child there who sort of, who, and I didn't see an adult with her. And, um, and I thought, oh, well, that's odd. And then I turned away. And then I turned back a few seconds later, and I didn't see her anymore. And there, I didn't see anyone around. And I sort of had this moment of panic. Oh, where did she go? And where was her an adult? Her adult? And, you know, and so somehow that, um, and I sat down to um, sort of write about that moment. And then it turned into this five-year process that became the Year of Fog, which, by the way, was called Ocean Beach. But my editor wouldn't let me call it Ocean Beach because she said it was redundant. And so, so uh, there's the dirty secret of publishing. You never, um, or maybe some people do, but I don't. You really never get the title you want. Uh, Dream of the Blue Room was actually the title that I chose for myself, but as soon as I moved... Um, 
on from, from my wonderful independent publisher in San Francisco, I found that there's a whole marketing department that always has something to say about your title. And uh, so for the year of fog, um, we probably went through 50 titles before they accepted one. And uh, at some point, like around title 30, they agreed that, um, that, the, that the word fog would be in the title. So then I just had to figure out something around fog. And you know what I think? I think that it was because House of Sand and Fog had done so well. They thought, you know, that something of fog would sell really well. So, you know, which... You know, that's fine if they ended up selling a lot of books, but, you know. But no one, you know, the, the same thing happened. I wanted to call it a beginner's book of mathematics. Would, would you buy that? No, that's what my editor said. You would. Um, yeah, my editor said that no one, oh, no, it wasn't a beginner's book of ma mathematics. It was a beginner's book of numbers. And she said no one would buy a book with numbers in the title. But I don't think that's true, Right. She wa I think they wanted the title to, um, to sound like it um, was about family or something. And so they, yeah. So, um, yeah. Do you have any questions? Can I? Is okay, Beverly. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny with, um, with no one you know, I did have a character named Thorpe who was, I had always sworn I would never write a book about a writer. And in the, no one you know, I ended up having a character who um, had been the, um, the narrator's English professor when she was at USF and who desperately wanted to be a writer. And so when he found, when her sister um, was murdered, her sister, the math prodigy, was murdered, um, he sort of befriended, he was a young, very young professor at the time, 30 years old, and he uh, befriended her and then turned her story into a, turned her family story into a true crime book. And um, um, so I think with Thorpe, I started out with the idea that if I was going to write about a writer, he would have to um, be a really bad guy. And, uh, and sort of over the course of the book, I, I think that I found myself feeling a little bit more sympathy for him than I expected to. And so, um, uh, so yeah, he ended up going a different direction than, than I had intended originally, which hopefully turned out to be a good thing, but yeah. I used to always only write on a computer. I couldn't do anything else. Although when I was in college, it was uh, those. Um, uh, it had a, it had a little. It was a type. It looked like a typewriter, but it had. It was called a word processor. You remember <laughs> word processors? They had a little screen. Do you remember these? You don't remember them, Beverly. They, you did. They have. Um, there was a tiny little screen, and you would put the little disc in it, and uh, so. Um, I would always write on that, and then I uh, graduated eventually to computers, and, and, once I, and then I could never write on anything other than something that I could type on, so it was always a computer. And then I had my son, and I realized I had, and I had absolutely no time to write, and this was a child who never slept, and um, I was trying to um, finish the year of fog, and I ended up writing a lot in my Jeep. I would drive up and down the great highway until I fell asleep. I know this is a bad, 
gas thing, you know, um, not particularly good for the environment, but when you have a child who absolutely won't sleep, you'll do it. Just watch. And so I would drive up and down the great highway until he fell asleep. And then I would pull in and I would park. And that is when, so that's five years ago, that's when I started writing in notebooks a lot because I'd always thought that I had to have sort of that contact to, uh, to be able to write and serve that speed. And then I discovered, and so then I wrote a great deal of no one you know just writing it in notebooks. So with my, with um, the research, it, it just really sort of depends on, you know, where I am and what I'm looking into. Um, with no one you know, uh, the narrator is a coffee buyer. So I spent time um, at a, um, a coffee warehouse in South City and uh which is wonderful have any of you been into a coffee warehouse i had been to a coffee plantation before but not a warehouse which doesn't sound very romantic but just bags and bags and bags these huge burlap bags of coffee and the smell is just astonishing it's wonderful and so i um did cuppings and learned how that whole thing goes. And um, so I, I took pictures while I did it and um, scribbled a lot of notes and then just, you know, went home and uh, tried to put it all together. The book I'm working on now, I shadowed a, um, a, a doctor at the VA hospital in San Francisco for a couple of days. And sometimes I'll go to the VA to work on that book. And when I do, I, you know, I use a notebook. But, and I just listen. I listen. I go and sit in the cafeteria and listen to the conversations taking place around me. I don't know if any of you have had occasion to go out there, but if you're in that neighborhood, it's at 43rd and Clement, you should, you should go because this is the most beautiful view. I, I can't imagine any hospital anywhere having this view. It sits there on the edge of the ocean and over the cliffs, and it looks out to the Marin Headlands and um, sort of is vaguely dreary inside, but when you look out this wall of windows, it's amazing. And then there are all these trails going down from the uh, VA hospital down to down through Land's End. So it's a good place to be. Um, yes. That's a very good question. I um, I went to school in Alabama. I went to the University of Alabama, and I left Alabama in 1992, but I stayed in the South. I puttered around the South at various jobs and before moving to New York in 1995, I think. And so, um, but the funny thing about uh, uh, being here is that I've, I visited San Francisco when I was 13 years old with my family on a family vacation. So my mother was always arranging these, um, these family vacations that were sort of a la last-ditch effort to save the family. And uh, our trip to San Francisco was one of them. And um, the, you know my parents weren't getting along very well, and I have very vivid memories of that trip. But I remember going to Ocean Beach and just falling in love with the city. I, I come from the Gulf Coast where, you know, the beaches are wide and the sand is white and the water is warm. And, um, and this beach in San Francisco was such a different experience. It was so dramatic and so cold and beautiful and, and dangerous. And, and I remember just driving around the city and I knew that I would live there one day. And I was 13 years old. And uh, so when I finally moved here, I was... Um, 
well, I'm not going to tell you that because then that tells you exactly how old I am. Never mind. But uh, the experience of being, being from there and being here is that I never felt at home there. And I feel at home here. And my sister, I have a sister who's eight years younger who moved here as well. And she feels exactly the same way. And I think that the Bay Area attracts a lot of people like that who never felt at home where they were. And then they come here and they can't imagine leaving. And that's what happened to me. But, but it does, um, Alabama ends up in my, um, was uh, very much a part of Dream of the Blue Room. And it's very present in the Year of Fog as well. In the Year of Fog, the narrator is a San Franciscan, a photographer, but who, who shares a, um, some similarities with my background. And I, and I, uh, I think I even stole that um, trip to San Francisco when I was a child for the Year of Fog. Um, uh, I, I remember just, I remember, we, of course, we went to Alcatraz, and I remember being on the boat on the ferry to Alcatraz, and it was so cold, and we were all dressed inappropriately, and my parents were fighting, and my sister and I went down into the um, inside of the boat, and um, just looking out and thinking how beautiful everything was, and thinking how strange it was to be in this place with these people who seemed like strangers to me. And, um, and, uh, yeah, and so I guess one of the weird things about writing is that, um, you'll, you'll be in the middle of a story that, that is, that you've completely fabricated and is completely outside of your experience. And then at some point you find yourself dropping down and falling into, um, some some moment from your life or some sadness from your life or some you know some some emotional part of your life ends up bubbling up no matter how non-autobiographical the the writing is and that's always a strange feeling and that goes back to that that idea of will they recognize themselves you know it's it's worrisome when you send a book out into the world and you assume you you sort of try to make the assumption because otherwise you would never publish anything that um that everything appears fictional but there's always that that concern oh well what if um, what if someone thinks I'm talking about them? And then what if I actually was and I didn't realize it? But uh, in my very first book, The Girl in the Fallaway Dress, a little story collection, I, um, I had one story that uh, um, sort of, uh, to some extent, was about my mother and my experience with my sister's uh, scoliosis. My sister had very bad scoliosis when she was a child, and she had a very hard time with it. And uh, it was a story about... Um, about the mother and the sick child, and um, and I was really worried about publishing that story because I thought it would really upset my mother. And she, uh, she read it and she said, "Oh, I love that story." And she would tell all her friends about it that she had to that they had to read that story because it was about her. And uh, the piece that I had taken from real life for that story was that my mother used to always say when we were kids, she would just bring it up randomly. You know, every few weeks she would say, oh, I just don't know what I would do if one of you had leprosy. Because there were three daughters. And she would say, I don't know, you know, would I leave two of you behind and go with a sick child into exile? 
or, or would I send the sick child alone into exile and stay with the other two? I know, I would go with the sick child. And for me, this was really particularly daunting because I was the middle child, so I already had all of those issues. And then uh, my older sister was very sick, and I knew what my mother was saying, you know. I mean, it was fairly clear, you know, who she, who she had chosen in our little family. And, uh, wow, this is like, I am saying way too much. And this is being videotaped. That is not good. And, um, she, uh, but so I thought, you know, I, that's probably, too, I shouldn't say this in the story. It's too much. And then my mother just loves the story. And she, um, she tells people about, still, I mean, this was 10 years ago. The story was about two pages long, literally. And she still... Um, tells people about that story. Now, my book, Dream of the Blue Room, one of the sister, or one of the, um, I'm sorry, the, uh, the friend from uh, the narrator's childhood um, was a lesbian, and um, my mother tells people not to read that book. I am very much from the South, and it is very, uh, going back home to Alabama, it really is a very different place, and um, there's a, a, um, a sort of, I mean, conservatism isn't even the word for it. There's a sort of acceptance of um, banishment of people based on uh, who they are in various ways that's very much accepted in the world that I, I, I come from. And, um, and uh, so she really tells people not to read that book. It's very interesting. Yeah. Does, it, does anyone else have it? Do any of you, um, in the stories that you write, are there students here from writing workshops? Are there any? Um, do you ever write about real people in your stories? Yeah? And how does that, do they see, do you let them see the stories? And how does that go for you? What? Oh, that's good. Good for you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that can happen. Yeah. No, that's never happened. And, you know, I, not that I haven't looked, you know, because all of my friends write books. And, you know, there comes a point, you know, everybody you know has, writes books. And you're kind of thinking, well, why haven't they ever used me? Am I that dull? Really? They can't, you know, they can't slip me in somewhere. Because, like, what I do, I just went to my 20th high school reunion last year in Alabama, and what I was handing out as party favors, people kept coming up to me and saying, I want to be in your next book. I want to be in your next book. So I said yes to everyone. So my, my new book just had the names, the just actual names, not the characters, but the names are um, people that I knew from high school, and uh, some of whom were never really very nice to me. But, um, and so I think, yeah, that'd be fine. You're reading a book and then your name is in it, but that never happens to me. So, yeah. You know, I think I, I, I realized really, really early in the process. And, um, the, the reason I realized it was I was really struggling. Um, I had written, I was on contract for a book after the year of fog and I'd written about 400 pages of a book and had spent a long time on it, and it was a disastrous book, and I um, had finally 
just called my editor and said, can I get out of the contract or can we, I just, I don't know what to do. I can't, the, I can't find any sympathy for this character. But, you know, when you sign a contract, generally it's for, or at that time, it was for a particular um, proposal. And uh, she said, well, can you write something else? She said, don't write that. You know, you don't have to finish it. Can you just write something else? And I said, okay, sure. And uh, I was trying, I, I, I was sort of trying to figure out what to write. And I had some ideas floating around in my head, but... I went f to lunch with a friend of mine and teaching colleague, Juvenal Acosta, who's a local writer, and um, he asked me if I had ever read Graham Greene's The End of the Affair, and I had never read it, and he was going on and on about what a wonderful book it was. And um, I think by that time, maybe I had a chapter or something of, of the book that would eventually turn out to be No One You Know, but I... Um, I went and I read um, The End of the Affair, and it's a tremendous book, and, uh, and I quoted it in this book, arbitrarily one chooses that moment of experience from which to look back or from which to look ahead, or it's, a story has no beginning or end, arbitrarily one chooses that moment of experience from which to look back or from which to look ahead. So I took these words from Graham Greene's book and had the... Um, the uh, Professor Thorpe, the writer character in Know When You Know, um, sort of take these on and, as his motto, and he pretends that he came up with them, although obviously he didn't. And uh, um, once I sort of had those words in my head and had this character uttering the words, and then the narrator discovers that, you know, it's sort of fraudulent that he didn't come up with it, that it's from this other book. But anyway, um, I, that sort of started to formulate in my mind that um, a great deal of what the story was going to be about was about storytelling and about um, how s these stories get created and they sort of become set in stone when, of course, they're not. I mean, the, you know, just, just because you say something is so doesn't, doesn't make it be. But so often if um, we sort of integrate a story in, into our lives, then we don't allow room for it to have alteration or for there, there to be some sort of alternate truth when usually there is. So that became uh, sort of the, I guess, I hate to see the theme around which I built the book, but it was always in the back of my head um, as, I was, as I was writing the book. You know? and, I, and I, for me, I guess that's uh, so much of what happens inside a book. Um, comes from like something like that, an idea formulating early on, and then as you're going through the book, all these things start coming toward it like magnets and sort of sticking to it. And it may not even be what you wanted to write about, but then you sort of can't shake it, and, uh, and, it's, and it's there. And of course, then the danger is trying not to be too obvious about it. Because, uh, you know, you, I'm sure you all remember your high school English classes where you always had to talk about what the theme of a book was. And I always remember thinking, what do you mean? What is the theme of a book? And it seems so painful trying to come up with a theme. And I think if you can read a book and say, well, the theme is, then maybe they're hitting you over the head with it. Although I think I just told you the themes of the year of fog and memory and, the, um, and no one you know is uh, storytelling. So... I probably am hitting you over the head with it. I'll try to be more subtle in my next book. <laughs> um, any other questions? Oh, 
You know, I would love to. Would you please call my editor and tell them? Um, you know, it's a weird thing in the publishing world that they, they think that everyone wants to read novels and, or, or memoirs. And so um, when I did the contract for my next two books, I said I'd really like for one of the books to be a story collection because I'm always working on stories. I love writing short stories. And for me, it's like breathing to get to, you know, to take a break from a novel that, um, that you know, because a novel, you're in it for years, and there comes a point where you just want out of it. And uh, so for me, writing short stories is illuminating, it's fun, it's a relief, it's, you know, it's really a breather. And uh, so I tried to get them to, to agree to one of the two books on my next contract being a short story collection. And they said, you can write a short story collection, but that, that's not going to be what we're paying you for. <laughs> and so, um, so there's sort of this sense out there in the publishing world that people aren't going to buy uh, story collections, which plenty of uh, story collections have, have proved not to be true. Um, not mine. I mean, my story collection, probably five people bought. But um, uh, I do write stories, and I do, you know, very rarely I'll um, publish a story, but I would definitely love to go back and do a story collection soon. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, well, honestly, um, my independent publisher, whom I loved and who took me out for many martini lunches, um, didn't do very well with distribution. And, uh, so my book didn't get out there very much. And they were, they were, um, wonderful about acquiring books, but they weren't very good about supporting books. And, um, I was adjunct teaching at two colleges, and I was teaching constantly, and I didn't have time to write. And um, I told them that, if, that um, I needed to have, make some sort of living um, if I was going to do my next book with them. And I, I, don't, I didn't ask for a lot of money. They, they, for my, um, my first novel, my advance was $1,000. And I remember being in $1,000. I remember being in Costa Rica on the phone, and the the publisher called me to tell me that they were going to publish my manuscript, and I was so excited. This was my first novel. And then um, they told me the advance was going to be $1,000, uh, which, you know, you can say money doesn't matter, but you do have to make a living, you know. You need to, um, you know, you need to pay the, the rent or the mortgage. And so, but I, you know, at that point, I didn't mind too much. I, I, was, I was really excited to have the book published, and I said, I remember saying, could you make it 2000 I'm really struggling right now. And they said, no. And, uh, and I should have taken that as a clue. And they also said, do you have an agent? And I said, no. And they said, don't get one. You'll get a much worse contract with us if you have an agent, which I, I have a, it turns out I have a very bad contract with that publisher. And uh, I didn't get an, I took my, the editor's advice at that publishing house and didn't get an agent, which turned out to be a, a stupid thing. And, um, uh, but fortunately, um, they just sold the they sold the rights to that book about six months ago to my current publisher. Who I, I make jokes about my publisher, but uh, it's Bantam with Random House. They've been really wonderful to me, and they um, they let me write the books. I, they don't necessarily let me title them what I want to title them, but they let me write the books I want to write. Um, the difference of being with a big house is uh, you they. Um, it, well, it depends on who you're with, but they, um, 
they tend to want the book to be out there in the world. They want people to see it. And so um, my publisher has done a good job with that. And that makes me happy because I want people to see it too. You don't want to spend four years on a book and then not have anyone read it. I mean, and it's nice and you have, you know, it's nice to just have a book, but you want people to, you know, if you put all that work into something, you want people to see it. You know, you want that story to reach, you know, more than your immediate family. So that's why. It's a good question. Anything else? Shall we wrap up? I just want to thank you all so much for being here, and um, thank you for having me. Thank you, Beverly, for all the emails back and forth. And I, I got to park in the most amazing parking space. I couldn't believe it. It's right in front of the library. It's a beautiful venue. Thank you all so much for coming. I appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.